0: Welcome back. Happy May 14th, 2021. I have gotten by in life because of role models and mentors. The year was 1980, a massively pregnant year for America, a year of major transition, especially when one thinks about the era of Reagan and all that the 1980s came to stand for. I was a fifth grade student at Phoenix Country Day School, PCDS. To say I was awkward would be an understatement. Some say I'm still awkward and in my awkward stage. But PCDS in those days, may still, I don't know, had a mandatory thing. Then every student in the fifth grade had to learn a musical instrument. And if it was brass or drums or woodwinds, you had to walk to the far, far west part of the campus to a triple-wide converted prefab home that was the music headwork headquarters of Mr. Les Felton's mothership. That's where Mr. Felton, the music teacher at PCDS, had his office. That's where the band and music classes were held. I think this was all provided or marshaled by my dear friend and one of the great women of Arizona of America, Gay Ray, who marshals so many great things in our world. I was more than hesitant and didn't want one more thing going into the faith, fifth grade like learning music especially as all I already felt like a bit of an underachiever at PCDS a little awkward and nervous about everything as 10 or 11 year olds can be my parents were always a bit older than my friends parents my contemporaries parents given they had me a little bit later in life and so I was a little out of the style and culture of most of my contemporaries in the fifth grade and Not really knowing how to dress right or quite fit in. I talked with my parents about what instrument I should go for. And my dad, a kind of amateur cultural historian, said, Trumpet, you can be like Bix Spiderbeck. Who? What? Dad had seen a movie in the 1950s called Young Man with a Horn about the life of one trumpet player named Bix Spiderbeck, who was hugely popular in the jazz scene in the 1920s. Dad was struck by something Louis Armstrong once said about Bix, quote, to hear him play once, even to just warm up was to change your life, close quote. Bix died tragically at the age of 28 from alcohol abuse, but for some reason made an impression on my dad, who always loved excellence and difference. So my parents rented a trumpet for me and I showed up to Mr. Felton's class. I had no idea what I was doing, couldn't get even a minimal sound out of my rented horn. And oh yes, my dad had bought me some big spider records to inspire me. I found them snooze boring. Mr. Felton had a newer and better idea on how to inspire students learning an instrument and how to read music. I'm not sure what it's called. I've heard it called modeling. But it was a two-part music pedagogy that worked for me and obviously thousands of other of Mr. Felton's students and students' students. Part one, give the students music they like, music they know, music they recognize, something that will sound familiar to them, something relevant to their lives and tastes. Part two, put them in front of virtuoso and famous players who example what can truly be done with an instrument. To that end, or the first end, Mr. Felton would give us music to learn, read, and play by such groups as were popular then for young people, Weather Report, Billy Joel, Jerry Rafferty, Toto, Chuck Mangione, and others popular in the mid to late 1970s and early 1980s, music we knew and could all groove to and would want to play. To the second end, Mr. Felton would play for us those virtuosos of their instruments to show what true greatness could be on a given instrument, So you would walk into that triple-wide music room on any given day and hear David Sanborn or Stanley Clark or Bob James or Chick Corea or Lee Rittenauer blasting through the sound system. He loved sound systems, Mr. Felton did. Where else were PCDS students going to learn of Chick Corea after all? Mr. Felton would do another thing too. For those showing a bit of promise and proficiency, he wanted those students to have tutors, extra time with great And other teachers, and he recommended many. Not surprisingly, some were his own family, like his dad, who was a well known and respected trombone player who would sit in with us from time to time, or his former students of generations before us, like the teacher he put me with, Russ Capri, who, a former student of Mr. Felton's, was as world class a gifted trumpet teacher and player performer as anyone more famous you may have heard of. Mr. Felton would bring in his other former students who were professional musicians to play with us, too, in class. Again, to always up our game and show us what to strive for. When Mr. Felton told my parents I should study with Mr. Capri, I, as a student, blanched. I recall saying, I can't do that. Mr. Capri is too good. I'm not ready for that. And Mr. Felton said, why wouldn't you want your son to study with one of the greatest trumpet players in the country? With that, and I became... A two-generation Felton student, a student of Mr. Felton's and a student of a student of Mr. Felton's. Dedication by his students who wanted to learn from Mr. Felton knew no bounds or limits. To the chagrin and some jealousy of other PCDS faculty, Mr. Felton was a bit of a cult leader, not by his own volition, but in the sense that students wanted to spend as much time in his classroom as they would anywhere else. Indeed, I recall for jazz ensemble, we'd start fairly early in the day before the rest of the school opened, often before the sun rose, and we'd all be waiting outside that locked triple-wide classroom when Mr. Felton would pull up in his green classic, Lincoln Continental, and let us play and practice. His music program was something akin to Texas high school football. It was the most important and desired thing to be involved in at PCDS. You wanted to impress Mr. Felton as much as you wanted to be his student. I went one step further. Mr. Felton was like my parents who were a bit older than my friend's parents. Mr. Felton was a bit older than the rest of the faculty at PCDS in those days, closer to my dad's age, or at least he was more old school. For example, Mr. Felton didn't dress like the other faculty. Every day, Mr. Felton was in coat and tie. And yep, you guessed it, in short order, fifth grade, I started borrowing my dad's ties and learned how to tie a tie so I could dress like Mr. Felton. Mr. Felton could play the clarinet and saxophone, but his main instrument was, of course, God's instrument, the trumpet. So much the more reason he would become, like my dad, and as I have no doubt for many other students, a surrogate dad, and he acted like one, as if he kind of somehow knew that's how people saw him. The funny thing, he didn't play trumpet that much in his classroom. Once in a while he did, and he was great, but for some reason, he usually taught in the classroom by playing wind instruments. I recall asking the legendary Phoenix piano player Charlie Lewis once if he ever played with the Feltons. He said, everyone played with the Feltons. Back to the classroom. He would open his classes with a story usually, usually a lesson about excellence. Remember how Mr. Cotter and Welcome Back Cotter would always have a story for his students? Mr. Felton always did too, something to teach or show excellence. It could be a lesson about a musician. It might be a lesson about lateness and never missing the downbeat. Or it might be a lesson on the guy making sandwiches at Miracle Mile Deli and what he teaches by his example, effort and excellence. I'll never forget the Miracle Mile lecture. Mr. Felton did a few other things, too. He wanted us to act like professionals, even as 5th and 6th graders. And to act like that, he put us in professional settings early on, 5th, 6th, 7th, 8th grade, and yes, high school, too. How? He got us gigs, truly. How so? He had a tuxedo company come in and measure all the students for their own tuxedos, and I'm guessing for nearly 100% of us, it was the first time we ever wore tuxedos. And then he'd get us on the road. He'd have us play at ice skating shows at Tower Plaza, and he'd take us out of town. He hired a well-known Phoenix weatherman, Art Brock, as the driver, and a big tour bus, and Got a few parents and a few former students like Russ Capri to help chaperone, and we'd go to places like Disneyland and play our concerts there, or SeaWorld, staying at hotels and motels like the Space Age Lodge. It was on one of those trips I got to first meet William F. Buckley. We flew, in this case, to California, and he was walking through an airport. No joke. Sixth grade. Sixth grade. told you I was a dork, but I remember that conversation well, and... Thanks to Mr. Felton, I met William Buckley for the first time. We were students, of course, at these concerts and didn't, couldn't be paid for those gigs. But Mr. Felton said, this is what musicians often get, fed. Sometimes you simply play for food, and so we'd play for food. And the experience of getting treated like adults and being made to feel special. But Flagstaff was Mr. Felton's favorite. NAU, jazz competitions, staying at the Little America, snowball fights, McDonald's, then the competition. Other well-known teachers with great music programs from Nevada to Arizona would always come to hear PCDS and see what Mr. Felton's band was up to. Les Felton and his band of renown, I guess. Those bus trips were special and a good time for students to talk more casually with Mr. Felton and learn stories of his professional musician days as well. Now, the funny thing about those bus trips, the cool guys always sat up front. Who were the cool guys? Well, people like Mr. Felton, Mr. Capri and usually his son, Eric. His other son probably had that job in earlier days, his other son being David. But he was a bit older, and I don't recall us being at PCDS much the same time. Students wanted to listen to those conversations up front on the bus, eavesdropping on the adults. Now, before you think, so what? Think about how many other teachers and their adult students would talk in a way like E.F. Hutton where everyone else around the age of 12, 13, 14, 15 would want to listen in rather than play with their Walkmans or gossip or listen to each other. I recall for no reason I can think of, but I recall overhearing two things to this day in one of those eavesdropping sessions 40 years ago. Eric reading some kind of letter and laughing about It where it said, Al Hurt was the best trumpet player I've never met. No idea what that came from or where, but I remember Eric Felton saying that to his dad and laughing and listening in to Russ Capri explaining to Eric and Les how awesome Tower of Power was. I, like students who'd pick up other nuggets, listening to Mr. Felton's conversations, would of course then, when we got back and had a chance over the weekend, rush to Circles or some other record store in those days and by the recordings of those Mr. Felton and his sons and friends were talking about. None of this is the best story of what a great teacher Mr. Felton was. These three stories are. I recall one day Mr. Felton was not at our class at Jazz Ensemble. He just wasn't there. In any other class, say, where an English or social studies teacher didn't show up, we'd be, of course, caught goofing off, throwing paper airplanes, you name it. Not Mr. Felton's class, A saxophone player a year ahead of me named Brian Adams on this day, hell of a saxophone player, went to the front of the class, pulled out a chart, I think it was Birdland, and rehearsed it. We rehearsed it under Brian's direction. Mr. Felton walked in about a half hour later, not sure what he'd find, but he nearly wept. Only time I'd ever see him show emotion like that. And he expressed how proud of us he was that we did what he would have had us be doing. That's why we're there, after all, to learn music and to impress Mr. Felton. You just wanted to do that. Few teachers, few mentors had that special thing. Mr. Felton did. Second best story, Mr. Felton knew to play well that you had to be challenged. Like tennis, play with people better than yourself. It's the only way to get better. So when he saw a promising 7th or 8th grader, he'd put them in a high school jazz ensemble, having them learn, play, play and strive upward. It was his version of putting good JV players on the varsity team, but not for team, interestingly enough, but for that one player so that he or she could improve themselves. As much as Mr. Felton was about the band, he was also about the individual student. Others cared about the 99 above all else. Mr. Felton did care about the 99, but the individual one sheep, one student was all important to Mr. Felton. That's why so many former students and professionals stayed so close to him after so many years, no doubt, or one reason, anyway. Now the best story. When Mr. Felton put me with his former student, Russ Capri, Russ introduced me, no doubt to his later chagrin, to a trumpet player I'd never heard of, Maynard Ferguson. When I immediately became transfixed by what Maynard could do, I could not wait to tell Mr. Felton about this great trumpet player. I'd never heard anything like his sound. Of course, that was my naivete because what I got from Mr. Felton was story after story of he and his dad sneaking in to hear Maynard at various venues in decades past. So, one night, Maynard was coming to Phoenix. I asked my parents if we could go and bring the Feltons. We had dinner reservations at Durant's. Mr. Felton ordered the scallops. You know how much of a mentor he was. If I can remember that very thing from 1982, I watched and studied his every move. He was, again, after all, my role model. Anyway, I could not wait for dinner to end. I wanted to get to the open-seated concert as early as possible for the best seats possible. We did pretty well, something like sixth row. We drove together, my parents and Mr. and Mrs. Felton. The show was great. And Maynard is not, well... He's not Wynton Marcellus or Doc Severinsen on a stage. He didn't stand in place. He doesn't dress to the nines, buttoned up all formal. It's not how Maynard rolled or did concerts. They were athletic events on stage. Athletic events, if you consider an athletic event consisting of triple Lutzes and triple Lindies and jumping and dancing around all over the stage, always out of breath, each song more powerfully played than the one before. Oh, and the continual gulping of champagne throughout the show. Some performers have bottles of water on stage. Maynard Ferguson had (laughs) champagne. On the drive home, my mom, always a little bit of a cynic, said, Les, that man sure can play, but I don't think he's in control of himself. You think he was on something? Mr. Felton said, oh, no, that's just Maynard, full of energy. I never forgot that and thought it was a story about my mom's cynicism. Years later, I told the story to Russ, who probably understood Mr. Felton's teaching style better than anyone. And Russ said, Seth, Mr. Felton wasn't answering your mom. He was talking to you. What do you mean, I asked. I didn't ask the question. My mom did. Russ explained. Mr. Felton knew what everyone knows about Maynard. Your mom was right. But he didn't want you to think that. At least not yet. He didn't want you to think of your hero or the person you wanted to emulate was a substance user. Either to discourage you in the right things or encourage you in the wrong ones, there. He knew you were listening. That is a teacher, a man always cognizant and conscious of what students, what children are or were listening to or hearing and learning. Knowing that students and children are always learning and soaking up things like sponges. Knowing that adults are always being watched and listened to. That is a teacher. That was Mr. Felton. I remember when I transferred into a different program from PCDS and had to say goodbye to Mr. Felton as a student, and one lyric from a popular Paul Simon song in those days kept popping in my head, I remember. Who'll be my role model now that my role model is gone? When I moved back to Phoenix about 10 years ago, I knew one of the first things I wanted to do was reconnect with old man Felton. I was so glad I did, and He and Barbara and I got together a few times. I looked up my last correspondence with Les. I could call him Les now. And I was reminded of what a great and caring adult he was, even in his late 80s, with a former student who didn't end up becoming, after all, a professional musician. I thought, I would remind him in an email of that concert in 1982 we all went to. This is exactly what he wrote back. I copied and pasted the email I looked up this morning. Yes, we remember the delightful dinner with you and your folks and the out-of-sight concert with Maynard and his crew that night. Those kinds of evenings are never forgotten, Seth. And your dad was one of my doctors during those years. My neighbor and myself, when we were around 19, took off for a week of music on the coast in Vegas. We started in San Diego and worked up the coast and then over to Vegas. Maynard at that time was the new addition to the Kemp Kemp, Stan Kenton trumpet section. The day we arrived in one of the coast cities to hear my favorite big band, we spent the whole afternoon swimming. So by the time we got to the concert, we were so tired we fell asleep on the front row when the band was introducing Maynard. I woke up when he opened up on a double high G. Billy May was also one of my favorite bands, and we caught his band in Vegas. Funny that mentioned 38 years ago, and we did that trip in my 38 Chevy that had no liner. We took a side trip to the Grand Canyon before heading home. Many years later, Barbara and I took in the 50th Kenton Concert celebration, and Maynard was one of the several solo guests. I woke up this morning to read Les Felton's name in the obituaries. Rest in peace, Mr. Felton. You were a great teacher, a great role model. Thank you for the lessons. Thank you for helping raise me. And from all your students, if I may be so bold to speak on behalf of them, you played your concert beautifully for us, and we thank you. I'm Seth Leeps. Welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show. May 25th, Sebastian Gorka, Andy Biggs, me, and Mike Gallagher. Crisis at the border. Go to 960thepatriot.com for your tickets. Welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show. This year your open line, Friday, 602-508-0960. I'm thinking a little bit about teaching now, especially after that uh, monologue. And this time of year, uh, you don't hear as much about it for obvious reasons, but it is graduation time. And um, one of the things I often do, I don't know how many of your students, those of you who have children in high school or college, I don't know how many of you are doing graduation ceremonies or live ones at any event. In any event, I'd love to know if you want to call me and let me know. I feel terrible for students and families that don't get this privilege of the physical walk. It's kind of what the four years is leading up to, kind of the, I don't know, crescendo you're looking for. If I can stay with the musical theme for a few moments. But I'm thinking about that and I'll do an annual commencement address. I've got some new things I've picked up along the last year or so to share. I do an on-air commencement address every year. I'll do one maybe in the next week or two as we get closer to the rest of the season. But I was thinking about teachers just now over the break. I was thinking about movies, thinking about phrases I use. I often use the phrase a man for all seasons based on the movie, uh, based on the play, By uh, uh, Bolt And just There's a line about teachers in there I've always loved And I know the teaching profession Took a lot of hits This year I say teaching profession because I mean the professional Organization of teachers Which is the NEA and AFT Those are the ones that should be taking the hits Not individual Great teachers who in many cases Don't have a choice but to join The NEA Or the AFT. But in Robert Bolt's play, A Man for All Seasons, uh, Bolt tells the story of a young man, Richie Rich, Richard Rich, who goes to Thomas More for advice on prospective careers. It's one of the great movie lines of all time. And Rich is bright, kind of a young man in a hurry, considering, you know, law and politics. And Sir Thomas More says to him instead, why not be a teacher? You'd be a fine teacher, perhaps even a great one, Sir Thomas More says. If I was, asks Richard Rich, who would know it? And Sir Thomas More replies, you, your pupils, your friends, and God. Not a bad public, that. You like that? You, your pupils, your your friends, and God. Not a bad public, that. I had a caller yesterday from a man planning to run for, a listener planning to run for um, a school board. Is it in Gilbert? I think it was in Gilbert. And I just can't tell you enough how much that warms the cockles of my heart to hear that. If we're going to change this culture, it's going to be through our schools, through not only great teachers, but great curriculum. And music being its own thing, I don't have much to say on that. I will say when it comes to great literature and politics, the liberal arts or the humanities the only way we're going to reclaim them and grasp them again is at that school board level where you decide curriculums. So God speed, God knows, to the listeners who are planning to run school board. And I know it's a little bit frightening to do something new like that. Put yourself out there like that. Subject yourselves to the sling in, slings and arrows of the political processes. But just know that if you succeed, you save, help save our republic over the long course of history, just as those who have been destroying it have succeeded and their jobs as running school boards and classrooms until now, it's our turn. I feel like now it's our time. And if you run, and if you fail, at least you'll have failed in a noble effort. And you, your friends, and God would know that. Not a bad public, that. I'm Seth. We'll be right back. Little Stephen Sondheim there, sending in the clowns from uh, Little Night Music on a kleiner Nacht music. One of the interesting things, I, the way the world is and what moves culture and human beings. I do this monologue every day, almost every day. Right, Bill, ninety-nine out of a hundred days, I do a monologue. Maybe a little more, uh, unless there's massive breaking news or something. Um. And I'll do it on a topic of the day, or something I read in the Arizona Republic or New York Times that ticked me off a little bit. And I'll get uh, a few email responses. I'll get calls, of course, and stuff like that. But uh, in the monologue today, which I did, it's a little different about the human touch. It's doing an obituary, a eulogy. I got more feedback on email during the break than I uh, ever have for something on public policy. It's really interesting. Uh, just an example of the many things I received. Here's one. Dear Seth, a very powerful, heartfelt monologue about your teacher and mentor, Mr. Felton. I had a teacher I remember well who taught at Glendale High School in the 1960s when I was a student named Milnor Richmond. It was a great thing to have men like that in your life beyond your father and uncles. Thank you for that monologue. A delight. Uh, thank you to the great teachers. Um, Thank you to the great teachers who give us cause to have these great memories. And, of course, you never know what the benefit of a great teacher will do for an individual. But when you think about education reform, I'm fascinated with the research of Eric Hanishek over at Stanford. And what the meaning to a student of a great teacher means the country. He analyzes the teaching workforce as having something like ten. To, uh, no, I'm sorry, eight to twelve percent poor apples or bad apples. A teaching force of eight to ten percent that bring the rest of the bring the rest of the um, image of the industry down when it is brought down. And he says if, if you can replace those 8 to 10, if we could ever get to a system that replaces eight to, uh, eight, eight, the 8 to 10 percent of the teaching workforce, that just isn't up to the job, isn't cutting it, uh, isn't very good. It would add trillions, not billions, trillions of dollars to our GDP. Over the course of a generation of students, if they were all given excellent teachers, so if you, I don't, I don't know what percentage of you can say you've had how many of your teachers were excellent in elementary and secondary school. I would probably pick like five. You know, most of them were good, but maybe five teachers were excellent. If you could turn every school in a, in this country to have that kind of excellence in teaching where the right end of the of the of the standard deviated measurement was high quality excellent teachers we'd be out of our gdp problem we'd cover the department of defense budget in 30 years 30 years think about that how do you get them how do you get them there's a lot of different ways to get them one of the ways is to appreciate obviously and endow and support the great ones And to appreciate and endow and support and encourage the good ones. But we've got to get to a point of the ability to give such a kind of merit pay to those professionals. As well as we've got to figure out a way to get rid of the apples that bring us down. We talk about apples a lot, bad ones, when it comes to things like policing and... In a way, it's easier to get rid of a bad policeman than it is a bad teacher. And in its own way, that makes its own sense too, given the power of the state policeman a bad policeman can bear and the power of the state a bad teacher can bear. One is acute and one is chronic. Damage may be long-lasting and over time somewhat the same, but it's the difference between an acute and a chronic public policy problem. But the thing is about any of these professions is they all know, all the members of these professions know who the good and the bad are. This notion that you can't tell me what a good teacher is is nonsense any more than you can tell me what a bad policeman or a bad fireman or a good policeman or a good fireman is. Everyone knows who the good ones are. And everyone knows who the non-performing ones are as well. So let's not get caught up in this kind of weird – Situation where we have to be frozen and stagnant in living with bad apples. We don't. We don't. Masking. COVID. Still in the news. Good. Good. I'm glad it's in the news. Um... Alex Berenson tweeted, if you didn't understand before yesterday, that masks, not despite, but because of their uselessness, were the linchpin of the pandemia, I suspect you do now. No masks, no epidemic. This is why Heather MacDonald was so right. Right. When she said she refused to be a walking billboard of public fear, paranoia, and illness. No masks, no epidemic. A lot of us were onto this early. Anthony Fauci was onto this early, telling us masks were ineffective. But the World Health Organization said it as well. I'm looking at a study of theirs from last year, March of last year. Quote, there is currently no evidence that wearing a mask, whether medical or other types, by healthy persons in their wider community settings, including universal community masking, can prevent them from infection with respiratory viruses, including COVID-19. Close quote. New England Journal of Medicine Last year, quote, we know that wearing a mask outside health care facilities offers little, if any, protection from infection. Public health authorities define a significant exposure to COVID-19 as face-to-face contact within six feet with a patient with symptomatic COVID-19 that is sustained for at least several minutes, 10 to 30 The chance of catching COVID-19 from a passing interaction in public space is therefore minimal. In many cases, the desire for widespread masking is a reflexive reaction to anxiety over the pandemic. This was last year. Why do we need Joe Biden and Rachel Walensky yesterday? Because some people don't listen to the science. Some people only think the science is what the most prominent Democrat thinks it is. What do you do when the Democrats are anti-science? Because they are. Moral clarity versus moral depravity. That'll be our guest, uh, Josh Hammer, at the top of the uh, next hour. He's the opinion editor at Newsweek. Um, You might say, well, that sounds like an unlikely guest for the Seth Leibson show. Something interesting has happened at Newsweek which is Josh Hammer's editing of the opinion section there. And he has brought in some great conservative voices, including his own. So uh, stay with me. Josh Hammer on moral clarity in the Middle East at the top of the next hour. You heard me mention this, and yes, Sebastian Gorka is joining Mike Gallagher, Andy Biggs, and myself on May 25th for our Crisis at the Border event. We're going to the border Andy Biggs is going to show Mike and me around, and we're getting on the day uh, day before, May 24th. Then May 25th, we're going to join you and talk about the crisis there, causes, solutions, but more importantly, really, in a sense, how it is but part and parcel, one piece of part of – one piece of the puzzle that the progressives have given us to take apart America. There are a lot of ways to do it. This kind of border malfeasance by the Biden administration, border malfeasance is a way to destroy this country. And Mike and Sebastian Gorka and I and Andy Biggs will be talking about that with you May 25th in Scottsdale. Love to have you there. Love to see you. You can get your tickets at 960 ThePatriot.com, 960ThePatriot.com. I see our friend Steve Hayward has given a uh, a commencement address. I'll tell you a little bit about what he had to say. And I want to talk, too, if I can, about um, what we're seeing from the Democratic Party today as a reprise from the policies of the 1970s. The 1970s ended up being for the Democratic Party what many thought would be the obituary and requiem for the Republican Party. It turned out we were out of power for four years, 76 to 80. And what happened in those four years, which looks a lot like what's happened over the last four months, is what brought us one of the greatest – renewals of conservatism in America I want to talk about that because if we're poised if we're going to be poised to have a great conservative renewal in four years we better have our ducks in order and ready to do it the 1979-1980 Republican primary was bitter but by the end it was clear who that nominee should be are we there now are we there yet we'll talk about that coming up too I'm Seth Lipson. We'll be right back.